Welcome back to The Talking Hedge. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your Cannabis Business Podcast. It's curious. Well, we'll have to have that con- Okay. We'll have to have that conversation if that happens, but dude, I'm excited to get your knowledge. Um, bear with me. I don't know if you can see what I'm seeing, but it says that Zoom and Facebook is redirecting. Meeting is now streaming live on Facebook. We are. Can you see it? We are. This we are- is live. Woohoo! Yes. Josh Kincaid, thank you so much for joining the first ever Cannabis Business Week of Cannabis Business Minds, day one. Appreciate you. Thank you for coming on the show. I'm excited to be here. Excited to kick off Cannabis Business Week with you and Cannabis Business Minds. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're very welcome. I mean, I think that, you know, thinking back to wanting to get you on this interview, we've known each other since like 2000, like since Oregon legalized, which is 2016, 2015 ish. August of 2015, I think, is when we first met. And then we had that uh, finance cannabis boot camp in Portland a half a decade ago. And I was so nervous. I was so nervous to be the moderator. It's really funny looking back on uh, the industry, you know, medical and myself and and the progression that we've all made and seeing you and uh, you're in Nice, France now. And so, I mean, I've been watching you and following you for half a decade. It's been awesome to to, uh, see you and progress and, and to be here with you today. Yeah, likewise. It's it's interesting when you frame it that way, like half a decade. And when you think about even being in cannabis and the work that both of us have done in cannabis, how it feels like it was it's just was yesterday. But at the same time, when you like if you had to add the bullets to your resume or, you know, the bullet points of what you've been able to accomplish over these past five years, half decade, it's actually been a lot. And like it's it's been significant, especially for you. I, you know. I think you were working on, and I want I want to lead into this con- this question, but I think you've been working on um, Chronic Cafe. I remember you were the sponsor for the event, and it, for me that was so fun because it was my true first experience of like getting into like an adult use market because I'd been in California, it hadn't legalized yet, and just it was, it was those early days when events weren't regulated and pie in the sky kind of mentality, and. And since then, you've done so much incredible work. You've done work with the World Trade Organization in Seattle. You've been, you have a, a lawsuit that you were not on the defendant side, but that you've been part of to kind of uh, fight for regulation and licensing in Washington. You're working on e-commerce. You have your own podcast that's called The Talking Hedge. And you're also a finance expert. So you've been just crushing it these past five years. Yeah, there's a lot of pivoting to stay relevant for sure. Um, Coming out of the banking industry, I don't think the cannabis industry was really ready for uh, a suit and banking obviously still isn't allowed um, six years later. So yeah, coming out of the gate with the Seattle Super Chronic Cafe was incredibly naive to think that I could just step out as a from a portfolio manager to to a cafe owner with without any obstacles. Um, and that's just not how the industry works. So within two months of launching on April 20th of 2015 with the Seattle Super Chronic Cafe, there was a felony, a class C felony on maintaining and operating a marijuana lounge in Washington. 
And naively, I thought that would be pretty, pretty fast to, to turn over like, oh, they just made a mistake. It's going to be three months and they're going to, you know, fast forward five years and it's still a felony. And so, yeah, I jumped on a, on a committee to overturn that felony. It went nowhere. And then I became the chair of the committee. And then these, this virus happened. And so that delayed it even further. Um, while they fast track delivery and other, other things in Washington, I think marijuana lounges are going to not be a thing for another year or two. So kind of have to pivot again and and focus on something else until they're ready. Yeah. Well, I think that's, I mean, the very interesting thing is like understanding your jump from corporate to cannabis. Like how did that even happen with you? What was your, what was that triggering moment at your desk job or what you were working on to get into this space? And, and since that, that moment, what have you been up to? So I started working for a brokerage firm in uh, 2008. So right before the Lehman collapse, um, I got in there and I was transferring my my retirement plan. And so I lost no money during that 2008 collapse just because of the timing of it all. So that that was awesome. Mm -hmm. Um, But basically I saw all of these pot stocks go online. So I'm managing a $650 million fund with Capital One and I'm seeing these Bloomberg screens with all these pot stocks and we're adding it to the security master and we're doing our due diligence to make sure that our clients are getting the right types of pot stocks that are not too risky. And so getting, getting all this information for a year or two uh, ahead, I knew the direction the industry was going to go. Mm-hmm. And so I felt comfortable enough leaving my, my employment to start the, a cannabis company. But really, I don't think I would have done it without the inspiration from a friend of mine who has since passed away from multiple sclerosis. And so my buddy, Zach, who I went to high school with and played uh, football with and a college roommate, uh, he had MS. My, my father also passed away of, of MS in 1988. So it's something that, that I've been aware of, you know, this yeah. autoimmune disease that mm-hmm. cannabis can, can really help with. And so I was inspired to leave my job and start the Seattle Super Chronic Cafe for to, to kind of create a place for people like Zach to be able to come mm-hmm. and consume in a safe place. And that's what kind of drove me to, to be on the political side, to join yeah. uh, the Cannabis Alliance and the Coalition of Cannabis Standards and Ethics and join a committee and try and overturn this felony, really just to, to bring a community together. Because that cafe is really the, the eye or soul into the industry. As soon as you can see people consuming and being mm-hmm. responsible, it's going to change everything. Yeah. I always think about like, what is the way that you get somebody who is doesn't even know what cannabis is, calls it marijuana still, to understand, you know, to break any resistance to that and to understand, oh, this is an industry that is thriving. People aren't stoners. Like there's a lot to learn about this plant that's been prohibited. And so in your mind, is it that you have to have some form of that event or that space for it to light up? Or what do you think if you had to think about one thing that would change somebody and open their eyes, what is it? Uh, physically, I think it would be the cafe. 
intellectually, I think it's understanding the endocannabinoid system. The ECS is the circuitry, right? And so if you think about um, the circuit breaker in your house, that, that entire circuit breaker is your endocannabinoid system. And the individual switches or tabs are your immune system, your digestive system. Um, you know, all of these systems you have run on your endocannabinoid system. If you don't have cannabinoids like THC or CBN, CBG, CBD, then your body is going to be, you know, less optimum. It's not going to run as efficiently and you're going to be more, the chances of you getting an autoimmune disease are easier. You don't have an ibuprofen system. And so if you're blocking your CB1, CB2 receptor cells with these, these pills, your body can't breathe. Your body can't uh, recover and respond. And so you get these autoimmune diseases like multiple sclerosis. I fully believe my friend Zach died as a result of taking 12 ibuprofens a day for the pain that he had. Had he used something more organic like cannabis, he'd still mm -hmm. be alive. Yeah. I mean, it's really powerful. And then when, I don't know how much you got involved with him and like him talking to doctors or traditional medicine, but at that point, were they even open to cannabis or even CBD at that moment? No, it was a, it was a trial. I had to go, he, he was in a federally subsidized um, facility. And so yeah. because it's federally subsidized, they, they are not um, yes. trying to deal with cannabinoids, even CBD. And it was unfortunate because I would give him a little pin, this little disposable vape pin he could hit in bed and, and no one would know. Yeah. But then somebody found out and then the director went in and confiscated it. And it was, it was unfortunate. So I'd have to literally go in and with this engine hoist, pick him up out of bed, put him into a chair and then take him outside. And we, I do that once a week. I did that for several years. And eventually we had this little train where a couple other people would be in their wheelchairs and coming out. And so yeah. it, was, it was kind of fun. But yeah, it, whatever I could do to help him die more comfortably, you know, give yeah. him a little bit more, more ease was, was worth it. So I started growing for him in uh, 2013, I think. Mm -hmm. um, invested about 20 grand into a grow facility. So I really learned in medical days how to grow. I packaged pre-rolls mm -hmm. uh, with argon and, and strain-specific pre-rolls before anybody even knew what strains were. You know, I was growing Blue Dream and packaging strain-specific products in 2015 before that was a thing. So with the the felony i had to pivot to stay relevant and so yeah. i would i was going down to portland to do catering and event planning and that was really successful making cbd coffee before people knew what cbd was yeah. um and then people would want me to bring stuff you know in the medical days you could bring a slab of oil or you know a pound of flour and so i was wholesaling um and then that kind of turned into advising as i saw people you know 18 people on a pre-roll uh desk you know making pre-rolls i'm like why aren't you investing in a pre-roll machine so uh, that's kind of my background is automation in the yeah. industry uh, i was in finance and then i came in here i'm like we need to automate this so pre-roll machines yeah. have been something i've been looking at for five years and so it's just kind of evolved into that from catering to uh wholesale to advising uh, which is what i do now with uh, the super chronics kind of a boutique advisory firm. Mm -hmm. And what are you advising on? Because you've got such a fascinating background where you're doing risk management, you have process, you were working in such a regulated industry where finance and compliance were fundamental because you're dealing with people's money. And now finance and compliance in this space is, it's a, a, it's a pillar. It's a, it's a building block that if you want a successful business in either hemp or uh, cannabis, you have to have both of those at the forefront. So what type of consulting did you find that people really are needing? 
uh, efficiencies. So mostly operations, and it's kind of evolved over the last year or two, but initially it was about optimizing operations. So looking at um, you know pre-roll machines, for example, and getting 18 people to reallocate that human capital, put them into a sales role and expand that with hemp pre-rolls and create national brands. Uh, strategic partnerships was another thing. If you don't have enough SKUs, if you don't have the right team, then you should really look at merging. So creating uh, M&As, um, not out of, uh, out of a need, but out of a want mm -hmm. uh, whereas now capitulation is a completely different thing people are forced to merge now yeah and so that's been a little bit different but trying to optimize flavor preferences with data uh, based on zip codes or optimizing inventory drop shipping uh, ipos rtos um, whether it's finance or, or products or just uh, operations optimization yeah, trying to, yeah. to increase their revenues and uh, decrease their liabilities well, I think, you know, offline, we were talking about this, that is such an important thing to emphasize is like, how do you decrease your liability? How do you cut your costs? Because when you think about operating, this is just cannabis, not hemp, right? But you have this punitive tax code, you know, so offline, like, let's get in a little bit to Washington. So offline, we were chatting and you're like, yeah, you can. So I noted, I was like, well, looking at the cannabis licenses in Washington, you can't that you can't apply for any cannabis licenses. And then offline you're like, yeah, well, there's a moratorium on it and people are trying to get rid of their cannabis license. Can you just talk to us about that? Because that was like a mind blowing, like a mind drop. I was like, how is this possible? Yeah, it's weird because you can see $20 million licenses in Phoenix, Arizona, yeah. and then you can see Washington state where people literally cannot get rid of a license. So I know of a tier two, um, which is up to 10,000 square feet, a tier two producer processor license that um, he literally can't get rid of it. He would like some money, you know, maybe five grand, but literally can't do anything with it. And so the, the restrictions for Washington is very limiting for out-of-state investors. Mm. Um, you, you can't own a retail shop if you're a producer processor. There's all these limitations. The, the pricing is incredibly competitive. So if I can just kind of share this, this graph yeah. real quick to kind of give people an idea. Uh, Washington State initially launched their their products with an average basket size of around $70. And then that price just kind of came down and plummeted. So when you look at the competitive nature of Washington, it's probably unprecedented. Mm -hmm. And I would look at this as an overall commodity for the world, because I think Washington State is a petri dish to, to explore further. I think that the pricing that Washington has established is going to be the commodity price for cannabis overall, um, and it's gonna be even lower. But I think all of these other states, um, so for those that, that can't see this, Washington mm -hmm. State launched its pricing around $70, and then about a year later, it dropped down to about $25. So if you're gonna- stay the same since- Right, and it's been flatlined the entire time. Whereas kind of, Col uh, you look at Colorado and it kind of launched at $45, went up a little bit as uh, you know consolidation occurred. Um, you have less brands because uh, in Colorado, you can have producers, processors, and retailers all mm -hmm. own the same thing. Mm -hmm. So regardless of where you're at, pricing is initially really, really high and then drops down. But Washington is crazy. Washington is this really unique marketplace that is incredibly competitive that everyone else should be looking at because pricing will drop once you have Mexico jumping on board um, following 
Canada's suit. And so you have this, this FOMO in the US to try and help with the, the budget deficits that's printing trillions of dollars. Um, Washington is an interesting market because unlike other places, we've kind of leveled out. We haven't really changed with this virus. You, yeah. Everyone had this, this post, uh, this, this uh, pre, pre uh, increase, right? When, when before everything was deemed essential, everyone's running out buying stuff and now yeah. it's leveled out. So Washington is a really normal market, which is weird because before it was not as advantageous as other markets, but now during a pandemic, it's one of the best markets out there. <laughs> yeah, that and what, it's just so fascinating because you think about Washington and Colorado legalized more or less the same year, right? Implementation was a little bit longer. Colorado's tax is way less. Washington's tax rate is way higher. They had to do, they amend, they reformed their taxes, their cannabis taxes. Do you remember what year that was? Like 2016, 2017? Because it was similar to what California is currently, where literally there was almost a tax levy on each of like a taxable event when it left the cultivator to the processor, then to the retailer. When do you recall when that changed? I think it was um, July of 2016. July 26. Basically, with the transition of medical to the regulated marketplace is when that value-added tax stopped, yeah. and they just put like one big old blanket 37 or 42 percent, whatever it is, tax on it. Yeah. Well, and, and that's at the retail side. And that's at the retail side because that, to me, is you know, so that's the average basket, which is really low compared to like I think about people's financial projections or like, oh, you know, this is my target market. They're going to spend this much on medicine, but no, like Washington's basically saying no. The average order still remains less than thirty dollars. That's, and then we've got Amazon there. We've got Seattle, which is a very expensive place to live per capita. It's much higher than many, you know, many cities in the entire United States. Like rents of like exorbitant. So you'd almost, you would have assumed that that would have like thrown the basket price up, but it hasn't. So yeah, I, I'm curious how you could be profitable when it's that low. I don't know if they are. I think it's altruism where a lot of owners aren't paying themselves. And mm -hmm. so in any other industry, they would have left already. And so mm -hmm. I think the lack of, because normally, right, like a small business would 85% fail in the first year. And in cannabis, we haven't had that. In the last five years, we have very few failure rates. And we're seeing Aurora and Canopy write off billions of dollars of, yeah. of worthless investments that they've made. Yeah. And yet mom and pops aren't, aren't failing at, at large numbers. But I think with this virus, they're not yeah. going to come back. Mm -hmm. um, we're, we're seeing a lot of changes, as a matter of fact, with this graph right here is showing yeah. the increase in flour. But I think that the actual consumption isn't happening. You can see that with pre-roll is decreasing along with um, topicals and tinctures, the work from home is increasing the amount of edibles. So mm. maybe the people aren't working, they don't need tinctures and topicals. Maybe they need something to lo lo last longer, like an edible yeah. since they're at home. Yeah. Um, but we are seeing that people are buying in bulk with flour and hoarding it. Um, but as, as this virus information comes out, we're, we're, the cannabis industry or consumers are uh, less nervous mm -hmm. because there's more news about... Um, the, about cannabis helping with the virus. Yeah. So you're, you're going to start seeing more people burning and more vape uh, purchases. But it was an interesting trend between first and second quarter as people kind of adjusted their preferences yeah. to, to work around the, the virus. 
Well, yeah, because I remember doing a video on first quarter trends and I haven't done one on second quarter trends, just overall, like what are consumer preferences even going by right now? So do you think now, an interesting thing, MJ Biz Daily in their fact book, the one that just came out, you know, a lot of the unemployment benefits for COVID from the federal government are going to end in July. That was like 600 bucks, I think, a week for people. Have, do you have any insight? Have you read anything about what that could mean for, for the industry? Because, you know, you think about it, it is an essential good. It is helping so many people with their health, their anxiety, and their stress. You know, if you had to spend your money and save, you would probably do that. And like you just mentioned, on a product that would last the longest, edible or flower, do you have any extra insight on that? Um, I think though that there's a lot of people, um, let's see, where do I want to go with that? I think there's going to be a lot of people that end up, um, adjusting their, their preferences. Um, and every, uh, everything is going to change. I, I guess I don't really know where it's going to go. Um, I just know that there's going to be a lot of people that don't make their way yeah. out of this scenario. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's going to be hard to tell. Um, but with Washington, I can tell you that if they don't change the way that the, the money flow is happening, a lot of these people aren't going to make it. Retailers are taking 45% of, of the profits. Wow. Uh, the state is taking 25% in the form of excise tax. Um, and the wholesaler only gets 22%. Mm. So if your producer and processor is only taking in one fifth a lot of what we're seeing isn't going to survive. So um, I think we're going to see a lot of people um, go out of business and just mm -hmm. not survive. You're going to see consolidation. You're going to see mm -hmm. uh, all of these things that should have played out a long time ago. Um, but yeah, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't really know no, where, where, be, where it's going to uh, go. You'd be a billionaire, right? Like, I think that's a, that was a pretty hard question to, to answer. Can you compare this, if you looked at this compared to CPG or if you looked at this compared to alcohol, where do, do retailers, they probably don't hold that much of the profit in other markets. I don't know what that percentage would be, do you? I don't remember what profit margins are for, uh, for the alcohol industry. Yeah. Um, I think it's probably a lot less for cannabis being just a commodity instead of like a, a product. Like we yeah. haven't really gotten there yet. Right. So mm -hmm. because it's so, so cut up and segmented, um, I don't think we can really compare the two, but I, we've seen in every single rollout, whether it's Washington, Oregon, Colorado, you name it, alcohol sales are decreasing as yeah. cannabis sales are increasing. Mm -hmm. But I think as, as the, the margins decrease with cannabis over time, it's going to be those brands that do survive that are going to, to um, really be industry leaders. We just yeah. have to see a lot more consolidation before that happens. Very similar to Starbucks taking over the industry in the 90s, yeah. uh, killing all the mom and pops, decreasing all the prices, um, and then raising their price back up. So just like micro brews that finally had a, a discerning flavor that people wanted, we will see mom and pops, uh, a tier one, you know, really small producer come out of the woodworks, but it's going to take a lot of them going out before they can kind of come back and, and create something that people want. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's where I think brand strategy really comes into play. And like, are you talking to consumers? Like, have you done a bit, not even a business plan, but are you doing marketing the way that really makes sense. And I don't even think a lot of these bigger brands that are now 
going out of business or really asking to, you know, another capital raise. But like you mentioned, like millions of dollars in losses haven't seemed to do it right. And so I think that there is this opportunity, but the hard thing is it's just a cash flow issue, right? So how long can you withstand the storm? Like, I find it interesting that the mom and pops have lasted this long, which is so great. Like you want small business to thrive. And I'm curious if it's just because, yeah, you're right. They didn't take a salary, which isn't a good thing. Okay. Like if you own a business, you hopefully you can get that draw. Otherwise, you know, maybe you need to make that assessment about going to work for somebody or collaborating in a bigger nature. You've got a, an accounting background. I've got a yeah. finance background. And yet I see all too often people that don't have a CFO or capital yeah. markets analyst or a controller, somebody yeah. who's going to be able to manage the finances. So when you look at high times having $100 million in debt and not being able to, to do anything, you see Dan Blitzerian, who is a, a meme that we've all been making fun of for years, yeah. who yeah. spent $50 million on marketing for his company Ignite and still can't do anything. Yeah. Uh, the lack of accountability in this industry in terms of managing money is uh, a phenomenal uh, experience for me. I, I can't believe it coming from the ivory tower experience in yeah. college. You know, what you're supposed to do versus what's happening is night yeah. and day and it is yeah. bizarre. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's always been, it, it's been quite stressful to tell you the truth. I'm like, you don't have a teen, travel and entertainment policy. Like you're not even looking at people's time or managing anything. You can't track or analyze any trends like how are you making better decisions and i think that and i've always been curious if it's just this green rush where an entrepreneur doesn't necessarily want to hear that at that moment because they think oh the market is going up i'm just going to be successful and it's just a lack of experience working and building a profitable business because if you had to boil it down at one point of why that's happening what is it Greed. Uh, there's yeah. famous investors. I won't. I won't. I won't throw anybody under the bus. But I yeah. know of famous investors um, that have invested in Washington cannabis companies who have no oversight, no accountability, mm -hmm. uh, nobody on the board or in a position. And you kind of just think that okay, these people are successful. They must have a system. And I don't think so. I think they have enough money where it's this mm -hmm. helicopter experience, a shotgun, where they throw a bunch of money at a wall and maybe one sticks. But yeah. To me, like what you learn in, in school versus the reality, I just, I yeah. think that a lot of these people aren't savvy investors. They're just incredibly lucky. Yeah. Wow. And it seems like according to some of your analysis, that might be running out. That luck might be running out soon. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> we had a project a year, no, two years ago. That's when I was still in California and we were hired. The investors were like, where did our money go? Like the brand's supposed to be doing well. We... You know, they had a bookkeeper. So I think that's also a big misconception what a bookkeeper is versus a tax accountant versus like a CFO. And they hired us. They're like, where did the money go? Because we just lost 10. We put in 10 million. We don't even, we were at an, a loss. It doesn't make any sense. And granted, it's California. There was an illicit market. You know, they are a manufacturer, right? And so there is this growth expectation that you're not going to make a profit straight away. But I think it's, I think that's a really good point where, you know, if you're an investor, I'm curious because you do analyze the markets. Is it even a time to invest right now into this space, Washington or not Washington? Because Washington, is, it almost seems like no. It's been a big question I've actually had. You know, then you have to say, okay, well, I need a team and I need to be a savvy investor. And I'm, you know, that's 
that's a whole nother podcast conversation. Yeah, specialty purpose acquisition corps um, or blank check companies are are yeah. coming out of the woodwork. So they've been around for a long time, but not mm-hmm. specifically looking at distressed assets in the cannabis space until yeah. now. So that strategy of, you know, do you look at Washington and buy a company 30 cents on the dollar or do you go to Massachusetts and, and launch? Um, is definitely a strategy that I would look at, maybe simultaneously trying to get the licenses, but only working in the um, the old existing marketplace until you figure it out, and then launch in the new uh, new markets of Florida or Pennsylvania, wherever you're going. But distressed assets are, are definitely a, an opportunity worth looking at. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I definitely think so. I mean, the hard part is understanding the regulation running your numbers to figure out, you know, how many customers do you need to not only break even, but to actually start getting a return on your investment. But I find it fascinating because you just know that regulation changes so much. So knowing that eyes on the prize of Illinois or Massachusetts or New Jersey or New York, when that pops up, I almost am like, dude, you are just walking into a sandstorm for the next two years. And I look at, I remember like just doing all these events in California before legalization happened, then legalization happened, training and educating. And just nobody, everyone thought it was like, I'm going to make a dollar tomorrow. And that's just not the case. I think that people need to realize when they're starting, that's not the case. And it's not going to be the case for a few years because you have to build a business. Yeah, I just had a conversation last week with a guy who thought he was going to have 100% return on investment after, you know, the first round. And I'm like, that's just not how it works. Yeah. You're not going to get 100% ROI in a 90-day period. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you're not. And, you know, so one of my things, because I've been working on, like, this business accelerator, is really the when I talk to new entrepreneurs, it's like, okay, we can write, you can make your business plan, you can make your business playbook, but tell me how you're going to get your first customers. And I've noticed that people don't want to answer that question because it's like, they don't know. And I'm like, you have to know how you're going to get sales if you're going to build a business. It's to me, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Because you can't just, I mean, it's it's obvious that you need sales, but at what point should, should somebody be prioritizing their sales plan during their launch plan? I think knowing the target market is is uh, the first thing. Mm-hmm. I kind of work backwards. I look at what's your exit strategy? How are you going to get out? What, yeah. where, who are you going to sell your company to? And then finally, who's your target market? Who are you going to sell the, the product to? So data, you know, I mean, you yeah. could be spending all of this time on a zip code that doesn't have, you know, enough of the, the flavor profiles that you're trying to sell. And so just trying to accumulate that data and aggregate it and use it to optimize what you're doing, you know, mm-hmm. with sodas or, or whatever else. If you're selling, um, you know, paleo treats when everyone wants chocolate, you're obviously not looking at the data. And yeah. so, which is unfortunate because I think there's a health food opportunity and yet there's not a lot of investors. Um, there are people pitching really good products and yet the, the market isn't mature enough to accept uh, everything that's out there. So yeah. hopefully it'll roll out. But I'm sure you've seen in France being like circa 2015 is probably half a decade behind uh, where we're at. And so hopefully try- somebody somewhere figures that out. I'm trying to work on a game plan of like, okay, how do you get expertise from you know the United States into France? And you should tune in on Thursday. We're talking to a French entrepreneur who has like a CBD company based in the Czech Republic. But yeah, I mean, having a conversation with people about just what, what is hemp, 
what is CBD? Because you can't even say cannabis here. It's definitely, you know, going on the hemp and the CBD route and unaware of endocannabinoids, unaware of any of this kind of stuff. Um, and even talking to, and there's a lot of hemp shops, right? And so I'll learn a little bit more on Thursday about it, but yeah, it's definitely rolling back the, the clock. Uh, mm-hmm. I feel like Marty McFly. I definitely do. I'm curious if we could switch a little bit because one of the things that, and I agree with you on data-driven decisions. So I've been really focused myself on, you know, e-commerce. You know, this, especially with COVID, we've seen an increase in kind of deliveries uh, in cannabis, outside of cannabis, right? We've we've already saw the retail brick and mortar um, type of business shrinking. You know, Nordstrom's. Everyone's had to pivot because consumer preferences have ultimately changed. Where we are wanting to buy things online, it makes sense for us. We like that shopping experience all that good stuff. What I'm really interested to hear from you is your work with the World Trade Organization and building that, um, you know, this, it almost seems like this export, this e-commerce expert export ability for hemp-based companies. Could you talk to us about what you're actually working on with this project? Yeah, so it's the it's the World Trade Center, uh, not the WTO, mm. but so the World Trade Center obviously headquarters is in New York. But what a lot of people may not understand or know is that it's the world's largest business networking organization. So they have um, about uh, let's see, they're in ninety nine countries. Um, I forget how many offices they have exactly, um, over a hundred. But what they, what they do um, is they just kind of a, a facilitate international trade. So I did my internship at the World Trade Center. Uh, my background is uh, international business. And then I got a minor in Japanese economics and international studies. Went to the World Trade Center for my internship um, about 30 minutes south of Seattle in Tacoma, Washington. Mm-hmm. And um, learned a lot. So one of, the, one of the cool projects I had was a guy came in and said, I want to make salmon jerky. I just thought that was absolutely disgusting, you know, but what do I know? So I found him uh, some salmon in Canada. We had a a cannery in China. We imported it through Oregon and distributed it through Costco. And the last piece of that, excuse me, was finance. Mm -hmm. We did a home equity loan and credit card advances and friends and family round and finally got him uh, all the money he needed. And then now his products are available. So using that same philosophy with cannabis, it's basically aligning strategic partners Mm -hmm. internationally. Mm -hmm. So whether it's hemp or or you name it, um, it, it's the same opportunity. And and so I, I made it my goal in 2019 to deal with as, as few cannabis and hemp companies as possible, because I wanted to normalize the industry by working with groups and professionals that could help those folks. And so that transition brought me back to my internship at the World Trade Center, working with the executive director and helping to add hemp and CBD products to their World Trade Center's export store. So it's on uh, Alibaba's platform, uh, translated into 12 or maybe 18 languages available in 155 markets that Alibaba serves, uh, as well as on the intranet of all of the World Trade Centers. Uh, And that took a long time because let's be honest, there's a lot of really old white males on that board who didn't understand cannabis or hemp at all. And so getting through all those crusty individuals took about a year a lot of work because you just made that seem like so easy break down that year right like if you had to say five things that you did that year to make that big of a change what were they 
And it doesn't have to be five. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's five. I'll give you a couple. Uh, basically, legality was 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 huge. So mm-hmm. showing them that um, compliance and and legal was big. So I brought on Katrina Glogowski. Uh, she's an angel investor and attorney, as well as uh, chief compliance officer for Kex Trade, uh, which is a part of Kush.com online mm-hmm. uh, e-commerce platform. And so that was peace of mind, as well as knowing that there is opportunity and, and FOMO. So creating that, the fear mm. of missing out, you know, mm. was big too. So it was education, it was compliance, um, and it was just uh, an, a subject matter expert coming on board and managing that. That's what they yeah. wanted to know, that someone could handle it. So that's, that, that was my role. But it, it was a lot of convincing and... Um, hand-holding but you had to drop the seed and just it was more about timing than any convincing really you just had to plant the seed and wait for them to be comfortable with it oh interesting because I think that's like and I ask because you know I am very curious about trying to make some make something happen in France right we'll know a little bit more on Thursday what the real kind of deal is but yeah when you plant a seed how long does it take to grow, right? And I think market fit and timing, it's so important in everything. You know, that's why businesses fail. You might have the best business idea, but you just were too soon or then too late. And so I think it's interesting to be able to have the discernment to know when you plant that and how do you plant that? And then the nurturing steps to watering that seed with them. Can you shed any light on like how you planted the seed? Yeah, it's um, meeting in person, I think mm-hmm. is, is a good way to start. If you don't yeah. have that, obviously Zoom. And you talk about uh, the benefits and um, why they would want to have that on their platform. Mm-hmm. Talking about the, the legality and eventuality of it um, is good to say this is going to happen eventually no matter what. Why don't you be yeah. the leader and start mm-hmm. that? Yeah. And then talking about um, you know the med- medical benefits and the, uh, the farm bill and how it's legal. Mm-hmm. Um, those were all things that that I would start with and then talk about how my wife's ulcerative colitis uh, has been cured by CBD and that mm-hmm. um, you know his wife's anxiety could be helped by this pro- personalizing uh, your experiences definitely yeah. will, will get you to have people um, to fight with you yeah. instead of just being the messenger. Yeah, yeah. Well, I just remember watching like Mitch McConnell after the 2018 hemp bill pass. And like, if you want to watch like an hour and a half of just like the most boring C-SPAN stuff, but most important thing, if you're working in hemp and in, in that industry, you know, hearing how they decided and they were just talking about it. Like it was like this thing that they had just discovered in 2018, but clearly there had been so much work getting them to, you know, put on that political face of, oh, we just found this out. And I think it's so important, regardless if you are in the industry or if you're wanting to push legalization in a state where, you know, adult use doesn't happen, or even if medical use hasn't happened, it's like you can apply that methodology, not only in business, because that's like a a great sales tactic, get to know somebody, personalize the experience and then continue to nurture. But I think you're right. That's got to be a good way, because I think at the end of the day, you have to remember that these people are just people. They have definitely their own political agenda. And figuring out how to navigate that is, uh, well, you did it. You did it. And that's huge. 
It's, it, I mean, I'm not going to lie. It's really about money and show, showing them what the total addressable market is, mm-hmm. is, is first steps. Um, so if they know how much money they could make, um, they might yeah. look at it. And then what the regional uh, opportunities are, whether that's, uh, you know, the West has already been saturated. So looking at the Northeast or maybe looking at France with, with hemp products is always yeah. going to create that, that FOMO. Um, but with the price drop, you know, you can look at CBG isolate at $11,000 a kilo uh, and CBD isolate was that price a year ago. So for somebody to come on board and think, oh, these prices are going to be uh, like in New York or, or Philly for $7,000 for a pound of flour, that's not going to be around once you go, you know, uh, regulated marketplace. But yeah. I'm still getting decks that have prices of flour at like $4,000 a pound, like get out of here, New York. That's not, yeah. that's not, re- that's not real. But what they do want to see is revenue. They want to see legality. They want to see yeah. uh, just things moving. So I, I don't think that um, bureaucrats are any different than businessmen. You know, John Boehner jumped on board for an MLM uh, just because of money. It wasn't like he just found out about it. He's like, oh, cannabis cures. It's like somebody showed him a, a paycheck and he's like, I get it now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I remember lobbying like Southern California governments and like I, as the accountant and the CPA, I would always be like, this is the amount of tax revenue that you could bring in, but you have to do it a really smart way because of 280E and all of that stuff. But yeah, I think dollars don't lie. And I think I was pretty interested to see it make sense given what's happening with COVID, but a lot of uh, states that were anticipating to see maybe an adult use on the ballot you know, those things have really kind of dropped and they seem they fall into the wayside, which was interesting to me seeing that so many states have lost so much money and would, I would imagine, want a better way to balance their budget, not even balance their budgets, get out of that crazy deficit. Why not? I'm, I'm shocked that we're not seeing so much more push for legalization, but at the same time, we're in a freaking crisis. So that's probably why. I think it's all happening on, on the uh, back end. I don't think you're hearing about it because there's other priorities, but yeah. when you print trillions, you have to look at how to, to shore up your, your budget deficits. And cannabis, we've been saying on the, the Talking Hedge podcast for a year yeah. and a half that it's going to take a economic catastrophe in order for conservative constituents to be okay with the legalization. Mm. And so I think that shortly after this election, they will legalize cannabis federally yeah. uh, because of the FOMO out of Mexico and because the requirement that they need uh, for revenue. So it's, just, it's yeah. Do you think it's going to, I mean, Biden's policy was a two, a schedule two, not a one. And I haven't read anything new, like the Biden, Bernie, whatever marijuana policy. And we're talking about this a lot more in depth on Friday, but did you want to shed any light on your thoughts there? Yes, I think it will be a schedule two, uh, because that way big pharma will be the only ones to manufacture it and we can't. So the best, and I'm going to put this in quotes, the best way for the, the American government to make this uh, a product is for um, big pharma to be the only ones to use it and still make it criminal for you and I. So uh, publicly traded prison systems are a modern day uh, form yeah. of slavery. And so with black and brown people, uh, you know, you saw with Nixon saying that we're, we're making this illegal to keep liberals and blacks in prison. And that's not going to change. And so mm-hmm. with Schedule 2, it's going to mm-hmm. make it illegal for you and I to grow it, but not for big pharma. I think that's exactly how the feds are going to want it. Yeah. But 
how it plays out, I don't know. But I, if if things remain the same, that's exactly how I see it going down: is to criminalize it while making it legal for big pharma. Okay, so I feel like everybody that's listening, and I hope that you can join the conversation on Friday. That to me is like, well, then how do you make that not happen? Like, how does that? Because to me, states would states have received so much. Like you look at the graphs, the MJ Biz Daily Graph, and you look at the projections from medical to adult use, and you see by 2025, you know, adult use is completely eclipsing the medical market. So if that's to be the case, and I swear you even have this as well, like if that's to be the case, well then, I don't know. I mean, we need we need an expert, and she's a legal expert, and she's working on a legalization kind of bill with normal uh, Kendra. She'll be talking about this, but yeah, that's, I agree with you. I, I agree with you. And that's the scarier part of it. But then I think, well, hold on, it's still a schedule one guys, right? So in the end, how much has changed? Would federal enforcement then happen? Hopefully not, right? So again, I think it matters who stacked into the, um, into the White House. Definitely. Oh, yeah. All right. Before we get to the speed round, I wanted to just make sure, did you have anything else you wanted to share about what you're working on with e-commerce and health? or any insight into that space? Mm, I would I would say try to get on an e-commerce platform for uh, the World Trade Center's export store. Um, we just made a contract for uh, to, to uh, a Chinese company approached me. They wanted 3,000 metric tons of hemp seed to sell to Australia, um, which is a ton. So that's monthly. That's so look internationally if you can. Um, and then I'll also tell you that uh, you should be looking at Puerto Rico if you were in the hemp game, because Puerto Rico is the only place as an American individual and or business that you can go and not pay federal income tax. Mm. And so if you're able to save 20% federal taxes, you are going to dominate. And if you're not in Puerto Rico, you're going to fail because somebody else is there. That's yeah. my opinion. 85% of CBD businesses will fail and none of them will survive unless they have an entity in Puerto Rico. Wow. Uh, that's the exception is the big players because they don't have to be there. But I'm talking about anybody else who, who isn't uh, you know, fortune 100 multi-million dollar company, you mm -hmm. need an entity, whether that's a bilingual call center, research and development, or just mm -hmm. your full on operations down there. You have to be in Puerto Rico for act 20. Yeah. All right. And you're, you started Talking Hedge originally just to talk about this. So if people wanted to tune into your podcast or work or reach out directly to you, they can to talk about this kind of strategy, because I think it's fascinating. It's something I, you know, I've been very interested in. I always thought that you had to have some residency requirement there. Uh, you need to be there six months out of the year. Okay. So you need to be there 183 days. Okay. Uh, in order to qualify cool. uh, for all of the benefits. Otherwise, you don't have to be down there. You can just hire somebody to be a Spanish bilingual call center or a terpene R&D or whatever. There are opportunities. But if you want to take a full advantage of it, you should move down there uh, or have somebody that's head of your sales mm -hmm. uh, because sales is what creates revenue. And, and that's the whole thing is, um, you know, bypassing the, the federal government's 20% taxes by being down there. So, <clears throat> yeah, I, yeah, I probably do a, a quarterly update on that. I only have a few videos, yeah. um, but that's exactly how I got started. I want to tell people about the advantages of doing business in Puerto Rico. That's that's what started the, the Talking Hedge podcast. Yeah. Tax planning is so boring. It's so important, right? Like if you're trying to build anything, if you haven't created the correct legal entity and all of a sudden somebody's like, oh, I'm, I'm very interested in what you're doing. And all of a sudden you are this, you know, not a true unicorn in the billion dollar version of valuation, but like 
people want to buy your company, you didn't structure it right. That's a huge undertaking to either fix, resolve, or you might have lost out on something. So I think it's really important. And I would suggest anybody interested in kind of entities uh, and planning to check out Puerto Rico because it's something that I would say, why wouldn't you uh, want to do that? Very unique right. opportunity. Are you ready? I'm ready. What is one piece of advice that you would give somebody just getting into the industry, cannabis industry? Uh, don't, don't get into the industry. A lot of people get in the industry because they think they can help somebody and the cannabis industry doesn't need you. Uh, so make sure that you are viable, uh, no matter what, uh, pivot to stay relevant. There's never going to be anything that is, um, straight. So, you know, when you come into the industry, they're going to put rules that limit your ability to advertise, to, to, uh, get investment, to manufacture, um, you know, Washington State put a 10% cap on THC limits that didn't pass. But, you know, if, if you weren't fighting for that and being distracted by your operations, then you could be uh, out of business by not paying attention. So uh, plan for the unplanned and pivot to stay relevant. Excellent. What is your why? What is my why? Mm-hmm. Whoa. Um, why aren't cannabis companies more accountably or why aren't they more financially accountable why does the industry not not appreciate uh accountants and financial professionals more why doesn't the industry have people holding each other accountable financially yeah it's the curiosity right i think it's you know we've had that we've seen it in so many other industries and we were i think i was groomed that way to only think that and then you'd get kind of jumped into this space and it's a, a completely different thing. What's your mission? Like what gets you going every day? Like, you know, pivoting, being in this space, like what drives you to do what you're doing? I don't know how to answer that. I've been thinking about that. I don't really have a mission. I don't have um, a motto per se. Yeah. Um, I'm just a driven individual. Yeah. The, the high school I went to was an all male school simply because I wanted to play football. And, you know, we won back to back state championships and we were first in the state and second on the West Coast and 19th in the nation. I did what I set out to do. Yeah. And I've always been like that. So I will sacrifice what I need to do in order to get it done. And I'm just a motivated individual. So I, I do this for my family. I do this for me. Um, I do it because it's exciting and new. And I, I had this intuition that if I just keep doing it, um, everything will come to fruition. Yeah. So yeah. I'm just a motivated individual. I, I don't use uh, memes or, or other motivational posters. I am my own motivation. Yeah. Well, that's the internal drive. I always ask myself, like, I am on a constant search for my why. I did a podcast about it even. And in the end, I'm, I always am like, why do I work so damn hard? Like, I think it's like, Yes, I set this big ass goal that I haven't told anybody about. And it's probably this into like a similar kind of this underlying thing that kind of wakes me up and I enjoy it. Like the struggle is the struggle, but the, I think there's this enjoyment of the journey of like trying to get there. Yeah. Why do entrepreneurs work 80 hours a week for 40 hours pay? And why we also try to automate things so we don't have to do that, I think is the big thing. (laughs) Okay. Last but not least. We kind of touched on it. So 
what do you think the cannabis industry will look like when it's federally legal? So let's say it's 2030. What do you think that is going to be? So 2030, I think that uh, cannabinoids like THC and CBD will be innocuous. It'll be something like vitamin C. Mm -hmm. It'll be something that you take, you don't experience, but you just trust. That's a validated product out there that you don't even know. You take CBG and you have no physical effects, but you just trust it. Mm -hmm. I think you're going to have trusted brands. You're going to have uh, known compounds. You're going to have ingredients like salt and sugar, and you're not going to have CBD or hemp companies. You're going to have consumer packaged good companies. You have CPG companies that have ingredients where, um, acai berries were, were all the rage, you know, and now they're not. I don't think cannabis is going to go that route. I think it's going to be popular and remain popular in the same way that vitamin C is. I think it's going to be holistic. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be natural. I think it's going to dominate, um, take over sales of alcohol, take over sales of heroin, take over sales of sugar and other products. And people are going to, I think, come full circle for health. Right now, there's a huge push towards edibles and junk foods and all of these other things. Uh, whereas we're going to kind of revert back to a more holistic approach as we're all inflamed and, uh, and oh. sick and, uh, and tired and, and stressed out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I agree. I agree. I think that coming to homeostasis and like really trying to get to our best selves needs to be on everybody's priority, especially right now, especially right now. I'm excited to see, because I think with cannabis, we have, like you said, like there's the alcohol industry that it's competing with. There's even the coffee culture that cannabis could be competing with. There's skincare, there's wellness. There's so many different, like I'm almost like trying to show like this little like uh, nucleus with so many different um, lines coming out of it. I think that's the cannabis industry. And so I think it's interesting. And one of the things I just hope to see is some consistent marketing with our entire industry. So we can actually be positioned well to have those conversations with the people that don't know what it's about. And, and really, you know, if it's regulators to trying to push the agenda forward to, you know, a grandma who really wanted to have it or somebody that's my age, that's completely against it, that thinks they're going to get, you know, I don't know, crazy, right? Like the devil's lettuce type of crazy. How do we have a consistent message as an industry? to those people. Like that would be something. Maybe I've seen some Christian groups. My, my mom is super religious. Her, her and Jesus are super tight. Yeah. And um, you're seeing Christian companies come out with their own uh, brands. And yeah. so, you know, I'm not a fan of, of isolate. So my mom kind of comes to me. And, and so I look, is it full spectrum? Is it isolate and try? But yeah, as soon as we can kind of figure out um, those brands and the trusted uh, products, yeah. I think that's when we'll more focus in and say, we don't want an isolate. We want full spectrum. We want yeah. uh, something with the one-to-one THC CBD ratio for the entourage effect for that full bioavailability and uptake. Um, so I think we'll, we'll progress and we'll, we'll evolve. It's just going to take some time and um, it's going to require trusted brands. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Josh, let me see. I just looked and I didn't see any questions. Let's see if we have any questions from the people watching. No questions so far. Um, let me just double check because I had Keena from the team also write them down if we had any. 
I think no, which is crazy. Anything else you want to share before we get off? Because you're a wealth of knowledge. I feel like I'll probably have more questions as I sleep on this interview. So I'm planning for an economic collapse. And so I would look at cannabis as an alternative to that during economic corrections or collapses. We've seen that sin stocks have an inverse relationship. Mm -hmm. Looking back at 2009, 2010, gambling stocks went up over 100%, tobacco, alcohol, defensive mm -hmm. stocks like Boeing, all of these things took off. Now that we have cannabis, I would look at... Um, hedging your losses with cannabis. Now, initially everything's gonna collapse due to systemic risk and trying to get a margin accounts, all the leverage out of the system. But then you're gonna see gold and precious metals and sin stocks increasing uh, as a result. And so um, I'm gonna be heading out to New York in November, hopefully to pick up an award for uh, an algorithm that uh, one of my clients has. And so we're nominated for best AI platform and best alternative investment for a cannabis index. So it's like a, a robot trading platform. And we are up 89% since August. We are over 60% year to date. And we are crushing the competition. Ticker symbol MJ and products can't even hold a candle to us. And so I'm hoping to license and or sell that to TD Ameritrade who won the award last year. Uh, but invest wisely. This is not financial advice, but I am planning on a economic collapse. And I think cannabis stocks could be uh, the savior to all of that. Yeah. Oh my God. Okay. And let's, can you put this link of what you're up to talking hedge, everything that people can find you, let's put it on the Facebook group so they can connect, uh, find more about, because it wasn't this with Benzinga. The, yes, the, it's a Benzinga right? FinTech. It's not even cannabis. It's just a financial tech awards and, and we're nominated for, awesome. for best AI platform and best alternative investment. So it's pretty exciting. Well, it's so exciting because when you win this, it's going to also help the industry, right? Oh, this was, oh, cannabis stocks. Let me learn a little bit more about this. So I always think it's like better to shoot for mainstream anything. And then it just helps the industry versus working on the industry and not trying to kind of do that outreach. Well, you have done such incredible work. I am so excited to probably offline talk to you about uh, the World Trade Center, uh, especially as I've really been focusing on kind of international stuff myself and following all of the, the stuff that you're working on. And I really appreciate you giving your insight to everybody. I think you dropped so many knowledge bombs and um, thank you for that. You're very welcome. Let me know if you got some products. I'd be more than happy to throw them on there for free for a little bit for you awesome. and uh, see if that, that helps out on the World Trade Center's export store. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. Well, thank you guys so much for tuning into Cannabis Business Minds. And we will check you guys out tomorrow where we have free interviews with um, the executive director of the Michigan Regulatory Program. We've got an interview with MJ Biz Daily to talk about uh, market trends. So super excited about that. And then we're going to end it with uh, entrepreneur Kareem Webb, who did a lot of work and who's been doing a lot of work in the social equity space in Los Angeles and actually created a business accelerator for many businesses to apply for cannabis licensing and have received cannabis licensing. So we're going to hear about that entrepreneurial journey too. So thank you so much. Make sure that you ask your questions so you can get them answered. And we will talk to you. With that, we're going to roll this one up. I'm Josh Kincaid. This is The Talking Hedge. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Or don't. And I'm out. Don't forget to smash that like button on your way out. And check out these other videos that we've got. Thanks for listening to today's show. 
To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. 99.9% of our DNA is identical. It's a 0.1% that truly makes us different and unique. And that's what the show is about. Find out that 0.1% about your favorite guests. Find out what music they like, their first cannabis experience, and even what their room looked like growing up. But more importantly, or as important, their journey. Learn what makes them unique on Everything is Personal.